Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. A great show, an important show for you today, talking about reconciliation in a new book by Bruce McIver called Standoff, Why Reconciliation Fails Indigenous People and How to Fix It. Bruce is a lawyer. He is part of the Métis Nation, and he works with Indigenous communities across the country on Indigenous rights cases. And the book itself is a series of essays that Bruce has written over the years about various issues associated with reconciliation, the duty to consult, uh, Canada Day, and uh, residential schools. Uh, There's just a lot in there, and they're short snippets. They're 800 words to 1,000 words, a few pages. And we talk about this on the show, that that Bruce is a lawyer. He doesn't write like a lawyer. This is very digestible for someone who does not have a legal background, not a lot of legalese there. And and there's a, a lot of material that I found very enlightening and very persuasive, certainly, going through the book. And you just see it all around us every day, all across the country. And certainly a, as we're recording this and as it'll be released, uh, the protest in Wet'suwet'en, uh, the pipeline protest there, right? Th- that is just another case of the ongoing challenges that face reconciliation and why, as Bruce talks about in the discussion that we have, why there are young Indigenous people who are very cynical about the process and why reconciliation is not working in practice uh, across the country. I was very excited to have the opportunity to speak with Bruce about the book, and he was very generous with his time. So without any further ado, let's get right to my discussion with Bruce McIver. All right, and Bruce McIver joins me now from Vancouver. Bruce, how are you today? I'm doing well, Sean. Thanks for inviting me on the show. I'm very excited to have you here. As I said on the intro, the book is Standoff, Why Reconciliation Fails Indigenous People and How to Fix It. Bruce, before we get into the the pure content of the book, I want to talk a little bit about your personal journey, which certainly influences the book and comes up here as a lawyer, as someone who who fights for Indigenous rights within the legal system, I'm curious to know how much of your personal journey as a lawyer and your own uh, identity as a, a member of the Métis Nation, how does that influence the way you look at the law and the, the, the way you look at reconciliation, given that you have this front row seat to how it's playing out within the legal system? Yeah, I think for me, the more that I do this work, the more I realize there is a lot of truth into certain things being bred in the bone. And for me, it really does come down to the my own personal his, history and that of my fam, of my family, too. I tell people I ended up becoming a lawyer in an indirect way. I picked a lot of rocks when I was a kid on the farm in Manitoba. And I don't come from an academic background. I don't come from a professional background. And why I picked a lot of rocks was because my family ended up being displaced from some of the best agricultural land in Manitoba on the Red River, a few hundred kilometers north as part of the displacement of of the Manitoba Métis. And we ended up on the 
found a farm between a rock ridge and a swamp. And that's how I ended up picking rocks. And one day I saw there was a pile of rocks in behind the little poplar trees and that my grandfather had picked those rocks and there was no end to it. So uh, in an indirect way, that's how I ended up in the law. I thought there has to be something better to do than that. There are days when I think maybe I made the wrong choice, but um, yeah, I'm really motivated by my own family history. And of course, most importantly, by the history and the continued injustices perpetrated against indigenous people across the country. So I'm, I'm curious, though, to ask about the colonial project within the legal system. So it, it's interesting that you have that personal history of being displaced, of your family being subjected to uh, that part of colonialism, the, the, the displacement part of it. You're within the colonial system and, and fighting the colonial laws, fighting for indigenous rights. Is there a way in which there's a, a conflict there, potentially participating? I know you're challenging, but participating within a colonial framework, uh, like, is there any internal conflict there or is it all about overcoming those challenges and ensuring a more equitable mm-hmm. situation and, and preserving the rights of Indigenous peoples across the country? Yeah, I don't think there's necessarily a conflict. I think there are dark days when mm-hmm. it's very hard to be a lawyer in the Canadian system doing this work in Canada on behalf of Indigenous people. It can be very difficult when you're called on to explain to your clients, uh, why can't we get justice? Why can't we succeed in court? That's hard. It's not insurmountable, but it is right. d- difficult. I think one of the really important things to keep in mind is that we need a more expansive understanding of the law in Canada based both on history and the law, that when we're talking about the law in Canada, we're not just talking about the colonizers' laws. We're not just talking about the Canadian common law or statute law by provincial and federal governments, there needs to be that space for indigenous laws and their support for that within the wider Canadian legal system, at least in theory, in principle, what we're struggling with right now as a nation is to put it into effect, to have the space for the respect and exercise of indigenous laws across the country. So I'm really motivated by that challenge. I, I think that's some of the most important work being done by Indigenous people across the country. And that keeps me going day to day, even when I become incredibly frustrated with the inadequacies of the Canadian common law. What is the motivation for others to work with Indigenous peoples to try to implement more of those Indigenous laws? Is the reaction from, say, Crown attorneys and government, what is that process like? And I I know that the legal system, that the wheels of justice churn slowly, and that's often intentional. But uh, can you give a sense of, you know, how long term of a project this actually is going to be? 
Well, it's definitely multi-generational, but that's based on the fact that Indigenous people aren't going to stop advocating for respect for their laws. It's unfortunately, it's not happening as fast as it should. It could happen faster. When I hear the federal government representatives saying, we're all in favor in land, of land back, but you know that's hard to do. My response to that is, well, it wasn't very hard for your governments to just claim the land. Right. They seem to do that pretty easily, even yeah. though in a lot of situations in Canada, they didn't even know which lands they were claiming at the time. It's not very hard for provincial governments, it seems like now, to sell off those so-called crown lands. And that's yeah. a major issue across the country. So I don't really have, have a lot of time for people when they say we'd love to do something better, but sorry, it's tough and hard to do. I, I think motivation-wise, why should everyone be focused and dedicated to this hard work? It goes back to what principles and values does Canada represent? And I think that's really important. This is not just a so-called Indigenous issue. It's a Canadian issue. And non-Indigenous people have to stand back and think, what do we mean when we say Canada? What do we hold dear when we say we are Canadians? Well, there are values and principles focused around the respect for Indigenous rights that really sets Canada apart, particularly from some of our neighbor, uh, neighbors. And that's important. We need that historical and legal context. And then we need to hold government officials to account to ensure that they are living up to those principles. Well, I'm struck too. I remember back in 2020, this was just before the pandemic, there was a blockade of the rail line somewhere around Kingston. And I can't remember the specific uh, location of it. And I remember watching a news report and it was said that this was illegal. Like the, the broadcaster was very specific in saying this was an illegal blockade. And then I was reading about it and the land had been like, it was a violation of the treaty for the province to have claimed the land. So the law that made the blockade illegal was in violation of the treaty, which of course predated the law. And I thought, well, just just say this is an illegal blockade really doesn't take into account the history of it. And I'm certainly not a lawyer, but I would look there and say, well, this law is invalid because it goes against the, the principles that are outlined or, or laid out in the treaty. And and you know how much of what you do is actually trying to counter some of the lack of knowledge, the lack of historical knowledge or, or legal principles uh, and trying to explain that to people, not only your clients, but just in general in the book or otherwise, just to give people a sense of just how, how longstanding a lot of the legal traditions are, as well as the, the complications that come from a simplifying it down to what's legal versus illegal. Yeah, I write about this in my book, A uh, Fair Amount. There are a couple of really important points First of all, this whole argument about rule of law itself and what's legal and illegal, 
that's used in a lot of situations as a tool to continue the oppression of indigenous people. It's much more complicated than people might assume. And that if we actually are following the laws, and this is what a lot of my clients and indigenous people across the country will ask me, why doesn't Canada follow its own laws? Why doesn't it do that? And it's hard as a lawyer sometimes when that question is put to me to say, yes, that is a very good question. And it's <laughs> frustrating because what provincial and federal governments do, they'll maintain a policy of denial. They'll deny the Indigenous interest in the land, even though if it was finally resolved in court, there'd be a good chance that they would lose. But the way the system is set up, they can maintain a policy of denial. And it's very difficult for Indigenous people to have their rights proven in court. It's very costly. It's very timely. There's a huge risk when Indigenous people take that step to go to court. Um, and so as, as long as those rights end up not confirmed or recognized by governments, they can continue to deny them. They can say they're, they're standing on the law, but as the Supreme Court of Canada has said in relation to lands in BC, the provincial government here operates on de facto control hmm. of the land. They may There may be no legal basis for their decision-making and their so-called ownership of those lands, but they can just continue to deny that. And that leads us directly to what's going on currently with the use of injunctions across, the, across Canada to use militarized force to remove Indigenous people from their lands. As we're recording this, uh, there are protests uh, in uh, Wet'suwet'en and there have been protests elsewhere across the country in support of what's been going on there. And and I, I know for me, I, I read about these, uh, and again, not a, not a lawyer, but I read about them and my very naive sense is that there should be easy solutions here. Uh, and that's listen to the people who are who are there. Like that 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 strikes me as simple. And for you as a lawyer, I can imagine there has to be some level of frustration in that it seems like there's a, a solution right there on the table. But what what is the complication with the we can take Wet'suwet in, in particular, but in general, when these type of situations come up, why does it get drawn out? Why is it so complicated? And is it simply a fact of that the colonial project is so strong that any disruption to it is seen as a threat? It's part of the challenge that's faced all the time across the country by Indigenous people. And the Wet'suwet'en and the Gitsan are a good ex example, an unfortunate ex example of this. It's not difficult, and particularly in their situation because it's important to keep in mind that they've gone to court to prove their title. The Delgamook decision from 1997 uh, was 
was led, filed by the hereditary chiefs. So if there's anyone in BC that the provincial government should know that they have a incredibly strong case to title, it's the Getsan and the Wet'suwet'en. And to continue their policy of denying it, um, I, I think is beyond bad faith. It's re reprehensible. And there's an there's an, another path forward here. I write about this in my book. It starts with recognizing that that title exists. You don't need to have a court declaration for title. Governments right. can recognize it. I think one of the reasons, probably the main reason they're hesitant and reluctant to do that is because once it's recognized, the legal obligations on the government become much higher, much more onerous. And so they avoid those more onerous legal obligations by simply continuing to deny the simple facts and law that Wet'suwet'en title gets and title exists. And by doing so, they can hold themselves to a much lower standard and they can proceed with these injunctions against Indigenous land defenders. And I know a lot of law is, is based off of precedence and, you know, it seems that that, that comes up a lot. How much does precedent play a fact in these type of uh, cases? You, you talked about how the title is there. It's been affirmed by a court. But given that this country has such a long history of the courts making decisions that were beneficial to the colonial project at the expense of Indigenous peoples, how much does the, the history of those precedents set back or, or increase the challenge that people like you have when you go to court? Because you talked about the risk associated with it for Indigenous people. Like how much do those precedents just increase the challenge? They, they do. They can become a real obstacle. Part of it is, and I think I see this the most, is when in court arguing cases across the country on so-called historical treaties in Canada. So particularly the numbered treaties that we have across the country. And it always surprises me how often courts across the country, all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada, just rely on unconsidered precedents right. to assume that these are seed release and surrender treaties. Uh, no one re who knows those treaties, I think, can realistically say that that's what the agreement was at the time. And historians, as far as I know, that have studied these different treaties, and they're they're all they're all different to ex to a certain extent. But one of the things from my understanding that they all have in common is that the indigenous people there making the treaty never intended to surrender their lands. They were intending to solidify a relationship going forward. Yet. I saw it just uh, last year, I think it was, there was a Supreme Court of Canada case just in passing. So not deciding the fact, but referring to one of these numbered treaties as being a surrendered 
treaty. And um, that's terribly frustrating for indigenous people across the country. Across the country, uh, I can certainly imagine uh, that. Uh, yeah, uh, not that I'm again an expert on the treaties, but yeah, that that is my understanding of the treaties uh, as well as the, yeah, certainly not surrender treaties or ceding the land uh, in any in any way. And I have worked on a couple of projects of sort of tangentially of were the treaties, the obligations put out in the treaties met uh, from the government side? And very often uh, the answer to that question was no. So, uh, you know, how does that actually influence uh, the way and the treaty gets interpreted now? That's right. And from my experience, having worked in this field for a long time and being trained as a historian first became, before I became a lawyer, um, is that what tends to happen is indigenous people keep saying this over and over again. They weren't surrendered treaties. And then academic historians will start to pick it up eventually. Right. And they'll write about it. You know what? You think these indigenous people are onto something here? We've gone <laughs> back and looked at the records and they don't seem to be surrender treaties. There were something else. And then years later eventually that'll start working its way into canadian courts it'll start at the trial level and you'll have successes on treaty interpretation there unfortunately for different reasons you may not be successful at the court of appeal but eventually it works its way up from trial to court of appeal to the supreme court of canada we're not there yet on treaty interpretation on this issue, but I think we will eventually get there. Yeah, yeah it's one of those things too. You see it in, in other aspects, like with the, the Franklin expedition for years and years and years, uh, the local indigenous community was saying, this is where the, this is where the ships are, everybody. And uh, the, the people looking for them ignored what they were saying. And then eventually looked where the indigenous community was saying they were, and oh, hey, that's where they were. You'd see it and really painfully this last year with the discovery of indigenous children buried on the grounds of so-called residential schools. Well, indigenous people have been telling government that for years. Yeah. They've been telling yeah. inquiries that for years. Our children never came back. They were buried there. And now suddenly it Canada wakes up to it. Oh, we didn't know this. Well, you would know it if you listened and if yeah. you paid respect to what indigenous people are t telling you over and over again. Yeah. And I was actually surprised slightly at how big of a story it was when the, the first ones were found in Kamloops because I mean, I, I read the, the TRC report. I, I did some research uh, associated with it. And like, yeah, it, like you say, this was known and it's been known for a long time. And I was particularly surprised by journalists who covered the TRC, who expressed shock when the, the graves were found in Kamloops. Like that, that seemed very strange to me. Well, I, I could be totally wrong about this, but my thought on that is where the shock comes from is not the facts is not the prior knowledge, is that they're shocked into incredible incredible discomfort with their 
idea and vision of Canada. No, okay. I think yeah. that's where the shock comes from. Right. Is that they've always, despite the facts, despite what they've been told, they carry around this idea with them of Canada, the good. Right. And then when that is faced with the fact that here are these hundreds of children, probably thousands of children, of children across the country, um, then it resonates. And there's, there's this dissonance and they're having a hard time um, resolve, resolving what they've always told themselves and been told about Canada good with the actual facts. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's interesting to think of it too, in the sense of uh, sort of my understanding of, of law too, is that when you talk about evidence, there's this, this, the benefit of like physical evidence of having something right there, as opposed to the quote unquote hearsay or, you know, the, the oral traditions, which within a lot of indigenous communities across the country, that's, if not all that, that's a major part of cultural transmission Whereas the more European colonial view of evidence is that hard stuff, like physical evidence, what's been written down. And that, that's just another case, too, of the, when the graves were found in the spring of that dynamic playing out in real time in the public view. Despite the fact, and we were referring to the gets to the Delgamuk decision from the Supreme Court in 1997 mm-hmm. on Aboriginal title, where the Supreme Court confirmed the admissibility of oral hi- histories. Right. That was a very important part of that decision. So that's not new now in Canadian law. It's been well established for, dec- uh, for dec- decades. That if this is admissible in court, this is serious. This is not simple hearsay. This is oral history evidence that can be relied on. And simply another example of of Indigenous people wondering why don't Canadians follow their own laws on these things? Why don't they take us? Seriously, even their own Supreme Court said they were supposed to. Yeah, so uh, let's let's get into the book a little bit. It's uh, a series of essays, and one of the things that I found most striking about it is that you say in the intro, and it's clear as you go through these essays, that you didn't update them with historical hindsight. You wanted them to have the authenticity of the moment in which they were written. And I'm just curious about making that decision. Mm-hmm. It can be very appealing to try to use hindsight to correct any potential errors that you make <laughs> uh, when you write something. And so why, why was it important to you to keep the essays pure uh, from the moment and they were written? Uh, and why do the book in the form of essays as opposed to massaging everything into the longer narrative that we so often see? Right. So I'll do the second question first. Um, I did think of totally revising it. These are essays that I've written over a number of years. And when I read them all in one piece, there's more than 40 of them in the book. I thought one of the powerful aspects of not going back and using hindsight is to show that this is what my thinking was 
at the time. These were the concerns at the time. And as we go along, we see that a lot of them have not been resolved. Those yeah. issues continue year after year after year. And particularly for the pieces that I've written about the duty to consult, these are ongoing issues. And while the common law does, does of course, evolve as we go along, it's really frustrating for Indigenous people and for myself, definitely, that we're not seeing effective change. We're seeing the same arguments over and over again. We'll often see the courts say the same things. We mm -hmm. told you, and there's one, um, one I wrote there about the BC Court of Appeal after 10 years of duty to consult cases being forced to come back and remind the provincial government again. This is what we've been saying for 10 years. Why don't you start changing the way you <laughs> act? So I, I thought that was the main reason not to go back and start to fiddle. The way they're written and why I do this, and one of the, probably the main reason why I began my own firm, First People's Laws, because of course I wanted to play an important role in developing the law representing Indigenous people, but I wanted to do it and also be part of that public conversation across the country. Because I think as a lawyer, if you have the ability, there's an obligation to engage in that public discourse. That's an um, important way to try to be part of real change. And fortunately, I think I, I've developed more and more, but a bit of a way to communicate to non-lawyers. And that's how the essays are written. Uh, they're not written for my colleagues. They're not written for the court. The, I don't think the law is overly complicated. I don't have time for lawyers who talk about it's too hard to explain. It's not that hard to explain. <laughs> and I keep them short. As you saw, I think the average one is maybe 800 words, 1,000 words. And I think that's 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 enough you can get across an important point in a short period of time you don't need to write 40 50 60 75 pages about it and if you do fewer and fewer people are probably going to read that yeah. you can write a thousand words and have an opinion and it's based on the law hopefully that's much more uh, effective yeah, and I agree that again for for someone who doesn't have the legal background, there isn't a lot of legalese in this book. And you're right, the short snippets it makes its point. It's clear on the perspective, and it, it does allow for uh, a generalist, a, a non someone who doesn't have a legal degree to to come in and, and understand it. And you're right that there is a a broad range of topics here there is a lot of duty to consult you you are right uh but it does have you know reconciliate or excuse me uh residential schools in canada today and, and what to reconsider there uh provinces and, and treaty promises 
uh, you have the case to uh, you have like specific cases, uh, the Miccosukee Cree First Nation versus Canada. Uh, you know, you, you there's all these uh, things in the book that you might not actually get to or might not be as clear if it was written not as the essays. So as as the audience for this, I, I certainly appreciate it being uh, constructed in this way. I thought it I made it very easy to go through and very clear in its perspective. With that being said, that this is written for a general audience, how much does the average person, in your opinion, influence the process of reconciliation in Canada? You know, we have only ever had two political parties in power in this country uh, since 1867. Uh, both of them, from my perspective, are somewhat indifferent to actual true reconciliation. Uh, uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be a lot of progress uh, and there wasn't under the previous government either. Sort of my, my perception of it. So what, what is left for the average Canadian to do? Uh, the average Canadian who is not indigenous, like what, what is left for them to do? What can they do to further this process and try to address a lot of the inequalities and, and problems that you identify here in the book? I think there's a really important role that non-Indigenous Canadians can play in this so-called reconciliation project. And it comes down to what I call this cruel calculus that governments use. When they see an issue, for example, what's going on currently in Wet'suwet'en territory, as long as they see that, as, as, as an Indigenous issue, uh, they won't take it as seriously. They mm. won't think that this is going to affect us in the polls. If they see it as wider than an Indigenous issue, then there's more likelihood that they will actually do something substantive. That's why it's really important for non-Indigenous Canadians to get out there, whether it's emails, uh, phone calls, letters, talking to their political representatives, and showing that they're watching, that this is important for them, that Canada needs to do better, and they expect their politicians to do better. I always tell people, I'm tired of the rhetoric. There's this huge gap between rhetoric and reality. We need to close that gap. And the way to close it is holding politicians to account, telling them we want deliverables and we want them now. What is the reaction that uh, that you get from Indigenous communities that you work with? I think one of the things that we non-Indigenous Canadians are very frequently guilty of is treating Indigenous Canadians as a monolith uh, and not respecting or, or appreciating the diversity of Indigenous communities across the country, both in, in culture, history, language, but also in perspective, that you're going to have differing perspectives amongst such a large group of people. So w what is the sense that you get from the communities that you work with in terms of reconciliation and the various approaches that, that you see uh, from from communities across the country and how they think of reconciliation, how they think of a lot of the issues that uh, are so prominent and you discuss in the book. 
Well, unfortunately, there's a lot of cynicism from what I see in indigenous communities, and it's justified. Yeah. It's totally ju justified. It really makes me heart sick when I see young indigenous people get involved. They are told about the promise of reconciliation of what you can do through the duty to consult. They commit themselves to that. They work for their first nations, for their communities, and then they see what the reality is. And what happens then is they grow cynical. And I think that is the biggest threat to Canada. When, in, when Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people grow cynical about this reconciliation project, I don't see a way out of that. I don't think that we're going to be able to solve it anytime soon. And that's why we need real change. I was participating in a call yesterday with Indigenous clients from the Maritimes and government officials, including the RCMP. And I can say, after watching that recent video of the militarized RCMP force chopping down a cabin door, forcing themselves in, uh, arresting women land defenders in Wet'suwet'en territory, and then hearing these RCMP officials yesterday quoting Gandhi to me, be the change you want yeah. to be, talking about our Indigenous people. I, that is the disconnect at that yeah. stage. Yeah. It's incredibly frustrating. Uh, there are times when I look at my clients and I'm surprised they're not heading for the barricades right then and there. The level of patience they have, it's awe-inspiring. <laughs> if it was me, yeah. I'd be throwing over the table and I just, you can't take that. It's so frustrating. Trading. So it was it was very live in my mind yesterday. The thought of the RCMP quoting Gandhi yeah. <laughs> to my Mi'kmaq clients, particularly who, as some of the listeners will recall, um, faced the militarized RCMP force just a few years ago in the standoff then over fr fracking. Right. And here's what you have. So we really need to change that. I don't think we can just talk about cultural competency. I think we need to do something much more significant. Yeah. And uh, and as you say, the, the concern is immediate, uh, as it always is, of course. But certainly with, uh, as you say, with the RCMP and what's going on in Wet Sweat, and currently, uh, as we're speaking here, uh, th there is that immediacy to it uh, in, in that case and uh, so many other places across the country that, uh, again, and it's very well outlined in the book. So, Bruce, if people want to get a copy of the book, if they want to learn more about your work, uh, where, where can they find more about you and the book and where would you point them to if they want to pick up a copy? Sure. Thanks, Sean. I've got a website, 
brucemctiver.com and they can go there. They can download an excerpt from the book. And if they're looking to buy it, I really encourage them to buy it from an independent bookstore. I've got a whole list. I highlight ones which are Indigenous owned bookstores. And I really encourage them to go there and uh, not to be buying it off of Amazon. Yeah. And we would encourage everybody to check it out. Really just the tip of the iceberg stuff uh, that we talked about today. There, there's a lot there. Uh, and I really enjoyed going through it. I found it very uh, enlightening. And as we talked about uh, clear language, this isn't legalese, folks. Bruce is a lawyer, but doesn't write like a lawyer. So yeah. uh, we... the, the best compliment I get on that is when I have people say, I really enjoyed it. You didn't sound like a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so again, the book standoff, why reconciliation fails indigenous people and how to fix it. Uh, Bruce McIver. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you very much, Sean. So there you have it. My discussion with Bruce McIver, and I thank him so much for his time. And again, the book, Standoff, Why Reconciliation Fails Indigenous People and How to Fix It. As I said off the top, and as we said in the show, this is not a legal book. This is not a book that you need to have a legal background to understand. It uh, is written in plain language. It's very easy to understand. The shorter essays also make it very digestible. If you have a couple minutes here and there, you can read one of them. Uh, very quickly. So I, I would certainly encourage everybody to check it out uh, and head on over to Bruce's website. Uh, we'll link it in the show notes and you can find an independent bookstore, an independent bookstore that is indigenous owned as well to pick up your copy of Standoff. So again, I thank Bruce for joining me today and that will do it for this week's episode. Thank you everybody for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is you get your podcast, do the likes, the ratings, comments, all that good stuff helps other people find the show helps us grow head on over of course to to activehistory.ca all of our past episodes are there under the podcast tab and do check out all the great material that's been coming out on the site over the course of the fall as we head into 2022 coming up uh, going in strong with some great stuff there on active history and of course, if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, historyslam at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham. So that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Really appreciate it. We'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're up and I see Enrico Blazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.